It offers us the seductive idea that we have perceived and maybe even understood a thing, while we also know that we have not experienced the quote, real thing. No one sees this in the original production. Ralph Mannheim famously remarked that quote, translators are like actors. We speak lines by somebody else. Welcome to our Viral Theatre podcast, a series of four episodes based on our 2021 hybrid conference on the topic. I'm Heidi Liedtke, Assistant Professor of English Literature based at the University of Koblenz-Landau, Campus Landau. I'm Monika Tetschak-Fanger, Professor of British Cultural and Literary Studies based at the University of Vienna. In this episode, Sarah Beijang, in her talk, Theatre Without Theatre, Performance Transmission as Translation, introduces the concept of translation to describe the adaptation of theater for the digital medium and highlights the essential but often neglected work of the translator in digital performance. Her talk also asks two questions that are central for any study of viral theater. First, what is the relevance of liveness? And second, what are alternative ways and spaces in which liveness can be created? Thank you so much. It's really uh, a delight to be with all of you today, to the extent that I am with you uh, virtually. Uh, it's my first experience connecting with a group of people indoors unmasked. So I find it's actually a bit of a surreal moment out of time. It's both familiar and novel all, all at once. A real special thank you to Heidi and Monica for inviting me today. I'm, I'm really delighted and, and I find the opening panel to be really exciting and also really uh, provocative and, and to draw our attention to how important this particular moment is. I also just want to say that I know several of the folks who will be, uh, and the work of folks who will be presenting as speakers here, I'm really excited uh, for their talks and for the, for the discussions. All of which is to say that it, it's rather intimidating, of course, then to have the position that I do in, in terms of, of making these remarks to you uh, as the first keynote. So I hope that they will be useful either as a theme of connecting some of the ideas that we've heard and that will to come, particularly the idea of theater as a concept, both to think through and with uh, many of these intersections, but also potentially as a target for your forthcoming critique. And so I welcome both. I am coming to you this, well, this afternoon for me, this evening for you, as a representative of York University in Toronto, Canada. And I, I want to start by recognizing the many Indigenous nations that have long-standing relationships with the territories and the lands upon which York campuses are located that long precede the establishment of the university. The area where I live and work is known as Takaranto, uh, has been caretaken by the Ashinabe the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Wendat since time immemorial. It is now home to many Indigenous communities, including First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. I acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit. This territory is subject to the Dish with One Spoon, Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. As we connect telematically, I not only acknowledge the histories of the land that I currently occupy, but also our connection through Zoom, which bases its headquarters on the traditional unceded lands of the Ohlone and the Mwekna, and my reliance on intersecting technological systems that require resources extracted from communities around the world. I make this statement of acknowledgement not only as an act of accountability for actions of the past and present, 
but also as a reminder and call to continued actions for a better future. Usually at the beginning of this, I, I would start with a, a, a quote from a play or a piece of criticism perhaps. But in this instance, I'm going to start with that most prominent of pandemic era discourses, uh, a tweet. Earlier this month, Jared Mazzacci, multimedia director and theater professor, posed a question to his Twitter followers as to why is labeling this form of performance, digital performance, theater so important? Like film, radio, and television, should it just be named different? Or is it a site-specific pageant play with a different type of wagon? Mazzacci's question sparked a lively discourse, leading both to claims of it's theater because I called it theater, and more nuanced discussions of theater and theatricality as a vocabulary closely tied to funding and economic regimes shaped by union rules, available government support, et cetera. Of course, economic concerns underlie theater's history across all cultures and historical periods. Uh, as a materialist art reliant on collective labor in public spaces, issues of money, audiences, government, politics, and culture have always been at the heart of theatrical enterprise. But there is something else at stake in Mazzucci's question. As theater artists, students, critics, and scholars assess the circumstances of the past 18 months, we find ourselves looking at a very different environment for theater. What was already precarious for many has become more so. But like the incredible shift to online learning for better and worse, the attention to theater transmission via digital media or digital theater, as I'll call it here, has radically shifted the field of production and reception for theater in ways that I believe will endure and evolve. My talk today explores how we might understand theater and theatricality in the midst of an ongoing media convergence that began more than 100 years prior to the pandemic, but has clearly accelerated within it. We need finer distinctions for contemporary forms than the binary of theater, not theater and that will allow us to explore a spectrum of theatricality across media in an era of what we might call Anos Coronavirus, or ACV. One way to view digital theater, or theater without theater, uh, to borrow Alain Badiou's derisive phrase, is as a kind of translation of the mimetic, integrated time-space action of familiar live forms into digital ones that, like their textual equivalents, simultaneously offer the original theater, whether actual or imagined, and the mediated echo. Because both translations and digital theater have been dismissed as inherently inferior, inaccurate, and flawed, the framing of translation may offer both a way to understand contemporary theater within and as media, and more immediately to draw attention to the overlooked labor and aesthetics that shape performance transmissions on screens. Because of its perceived inaccuracies and gaps, then translation is also a framework to appreciate the ironic impermanence of digital theater and its position among media in a post-pandemic era. The Oxford English Dictionary defines translation as the expression of rendering of a thing in another medium or form, the conversion or adaptation of a thing to another system, context, or use. I'm hard pressed to find a more apt definition of theater on screens, but the nuances of translation and how it has been understood in literary contexts further correspond to contemporary debates about the role and function of theater as performances that occur both in and beyond the conventions of live co-presence. Translations have the sometimes awkward and often disparaged feature of presenting both an original in a form that may be more accessible, 
i.e. to audiences beyond the source text's original language or accessible in a theater venue, and a fundamental distortion of the original. The original is simultaneously present and not. It offers us the seductive idea that we have perceived and maybe even understood a thing, while we also know that we have not experienced the quote real thing and must rely on a mediator whose work may or may not be fully acknowledged or appreciated. If I say, for example, that I have read Badieu mentioned above, have I read Eloge de Théâtre or In Praise of Theater? Both. If I have read only a translation of the text, how will I judge its accuracy or appreciate the work that the translator has done in carrying the language from the author's original to me? Such as the indeterminacy of the translated text. Translation's undefined condition has been the subject of philosophical and literary debate in, from Nietzsche's birth of tragedy through the spirit of music um, and in work by Paul Demath, who claimed translation as a mode of reading that could reveal the inherent irreconcilable meanings of the text. Or we can refer to Walter Benjamin's widely cited but problematic essay, The Task of the Translator. There he describes translation as a process that simultaneously reproduces and destroys the original that it is self-evident how greatly fidelity in reproducing the form impedes the rendering of the sense. Thus, no case for literalness can be based on a desire to retain the meaning. Meaning is served far better and language and literature far worse by the unrestrained license of bad translators. Benjamin posits translation as an interpretive and repetitive, if flawed, enactment of the original, one that develops in time, much like the performance of a play or its recording. Is this not then a relation of recorded performances in the minds of some of their critics? Harold Jacobs, for instance, argues that Benjamin's task for the translator is ultimately one of surrender or what she calls a monstrous loss. This loss may remind us of the contested relations among theater and other media the so-called rivals that Susan Sontag weighed when she drew distinctions between them, or in the work of philosophers like Badieu, who argues that a theatrical text, what he calls the symbolic treasury, is necessary to prevent theater from disappearing into either dance on the one hand or cinema on the other. Translation in this sense is an open-ended process that evades any final realization, but rather holds open the opportunities and space between presumably fixed entities. Digital theater as translation may offer similarly irreconcilable meanings, or rather a theater without theaters as a concept and a structure for us to think through the impacts of the pandemic. This instability may also be why translators have often found theater and theatrical performance to be a compelling metaphor. Ralph Mannheim, for example, famously remarked that, quote, translators are like actors. We speak lines by somebody else. Alex Gross elaborated further, writing that the proscenium arch along with the entire theatrical architecture underlying the conjurer's tricks can be readily likened to the totality of shared cultural history between two peoples and cultures being subjected to such alleged acts of translation. And the audience for this staged illusion, those desperately ready and willing to witness the fulfillment of this fraudulent wonder are none other than those often ourselves already convinced that such a miracle can and must take place. Compare Gross's fraudulent wonder to the many dismissals of theater on screen, including perhaps most notably Erika Fischer-Lichte's 
pronouncement during an interview at the Belgrade International Theater Festival in September 2020. There she announced patently that something like theater does not exist. And I'll include the English version that was published online as part of an interview on criticalstages.org by Ivan uh, Midenica. I won't read the entire quote. You can read that for yourself, but I'll draw your attention to one of the kind of key ideas that those of you familiar with her work will recognize from much of her publications. But this idea that without theater, without spectators, there is no theater. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about spectators who sit somewhere else at home watching it on television. The audience has to be in the same space as the performers. This is what I mean by bodily co-presence. And certainly I have some sympathy for this, you know, as I, as I look at a little screen of my own face talking back to me and a small screen of a bunch of other people living and working and, and cohabitating in a different space without the kind of uh, ability to connect um, and read real-time affect. And I'm thinking of, you know, Amy's comment too about how little we see of one another when we're, uh, you know, working through, through these kinds of video platforms. But at the same time, I think that it misses some of the things that have evolved and, and are evolving in time. Both the interviewer, Medenica, who also cites, quote, digital theater as what he refers to as an ignorant term, and Fischer-Lichte speak as those well-versed in theater's original language, and, and so they both are. Attending the digital translation of the real thing, they see and lament only the gaps. This is, of course, an inevitable feature of all translations. Writing as a prolific translator himself, Lawrence Rosenwald has observed that, quote, the better we know the original, the more aspects of it we are experiencing, the more we see and feel how wrong we are getting it, i.e. the translation. Viewing digital theater as translation might explain disparities in reception. That is audiences split between those familiar with the original who observe the flaws, as opposed to those who are content to quote, read the digital because the original is inaccessible for any number of reasons. Of course, many have claimed that the latter ceases to be theater, and I'm putting that in verbal italics there, or else is an adaptation, if not outright corruption of the form. That there can be, as Fischer-Lichte says, no such thing as digital theater. To this, I would argue that digital performance is translated theater because perhaps more than any other performance form, it offers the shared space of audiences and performers and has the potential to create a unique flow between them. The difference is that this space is no longer in the shared air of the past, but the bodily experience has been translated into new digital spaces that replicate the same relations in new performance languages. I argue that these apply equally to staged theater recorded for screens and to novel performances created exclusively for online audiences. So let's consider a few examples. The first is Hamilton. The popular musical that premiered on Broadway in 2015 um, began, of course, as an off-Broadway show drawing from tropes and techniques of musical theater, American history, and hip-hop music and culture. Perhaps the most successful theater production in, I don't know, the history of the world, the Broadway production received 11 Tony Awards in 2015, winning every category in which it was nominated except for two. Hamilton, and I'll avoid giving it a category myself, but it has been referred to as Hamilton the movie, or Hamilton the film, or the film of Hamilton, or the movie Hamilton, um, or Hamilton, as some people have referred to it, um, premiered again 
on the Disney Plus streaming platform in July 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Described as a live stage recording, the Hamilton video was named as one of the best films of 2020 by the American Film Institute and nominated for best motion picture, either musical or comedy at the 78th Golden Globe Awards, where Lin-Manuel Miranda was also nominated for best actor in a motion picture, musical or comedy. His co-star, David Diggs, who's here jumping in the, in the middle of the frame, uh, was nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Male Actor in a Limited Series or Television Movie. More recently, the show has received 12 Primetime Emmy Award nominations for 2021. Whereas we might look at musical productions based on films um, as adaptations, that is, films turned into musicals and then sometimes turned into films, such as uh, Mel Brooks's The Producers, or more recently, uh, Miranda's own musical adaptation of In the Heights, Hamilton, in its screen version, was recorded with the original cast live on its Broadway stage and streamed into millions of homes and televisions via the Disney streaming online digital platform as a kind of transmedial translation. The musical as digital theater followed the original staging, choreography, music, and rhythms of the staged performance and marketed itself as the opportunity to, quote, experience the original Broadway production of Hamilton, parenthetically then now streaming exclusively on Disney+. Like most, quote, good translations, the screen version was not wholly accurate to the experience of attending the original production in, in the theater. Um, how many people have not seen or heard or experienced Hamilton in any way, shape, or form? Okay, I'll put some links in the chat for you folks who have not seen it. Um, I, I highly recommend all of the above. Um, and think that there's actually a lot of different ways that you can you can experience it as well. Okay, so Hamilton, the musical, um, is a fairly dynamic, I'll just say very briefly, as a stage production, theatrical production that also uses many conventional, uh, large-scale commercial theater Broadway techniques like the turntable stage and, and various other kinds of features um, that themselves have been credited as coming from uh, film and media. I don't have time to, to dig into all of those, but I'm happy to talk more about that in the subsequent discussion as well. What's interesting is that for myself, having seen both a, a live stage version and the screen version multiple times, that by some measures, we might say that the screen version is in fact better. By moving cameras on stage with the performers, Disney Plus viewers can see much more and in much finer detail of the original performers than those in the Broadway house, especially those of us um, who had tickets way up in the higher seats. I won't say the cheap seats because there is no cheap seat for Hamilton, um, but in the faraway ones. And, and in close-ups and key scenes that reveal nuance that not even the front row of a theater audience uh, would see. So for example, this is uh, Jonathan Groff playing King George. There was quite a bit of discussion after the screen version of Hamilton came out because Groff spits a significant amount during his songs. And in fact, it was subsequently revealed that the original uh, film crew and post-production crew offered to digitally remove all of his spitting and that the original creators um, decided to leave it in uh, as it were. So you can see a, a spittle on his lips there. Many of the screen viewers, perhaps most, were likely aware of the original, whether or not they had actually seen it themselves in the theater. But who watching the recording on Disney Plus would say that they had not seen Hamilton at all? Like Benjamin's distinction between the good translation and the accurate translation, 
The screen version of Miranda's musical was not necessarily the most accurate to the experience of attending the original production in New York, sitting in the audience, surrounded by strangers, perhaps with an obscured view, all in varying proximity to the events on stage. However, the media embellishments, including camera movements, close-ups, shifting focus, lighting, and editing, created another translation of the original show. The digital version also reflected, I think more insightfully, the show's debt to not only musical hip hop culture, but also rap circulation via music videos as seen on MTV raps in the 1980s and 90s. And in films like Spike Lee's iconic Do the Right Thing from 1989, which arguably brought a theatricalized vision of Brooklyn and street culture to global movie audiences. Contrary to the claims that theater on TV is a reduction or a diminishment of the original, Hamilton's medial translation both literally and figuratively shows us more by presenting the original production with perspectives not visible to any member of the audience. In this sense, we might even say that the quote meaning of the original show was more effectively conveyed through the inaccurate and distorting media than perhaps many of the live touring shows could offer. And an interesting um, example of this is towards the closing of the show, there's a, a particularly poignant emotional moment in which Hamilton, who has since deceased, comes back to see his wife, Eliza, played on the left by Philippa Sue. And they sort of, you know, they have this moment of reconnection across, you know, space, time and history. The view that I'm showing you right here is a screen capture from the film. No one sees this in the original production. Both performers have their backs to the audience, so they're both facing upstage. They're about midway upstage from the audience. So even if you're sitting in the very front row and you're obviously going to be lower than them, you're really only seeing their backs and looking up at them. If you're in the box seats on the sides of the house, you might have a little bit more of a view of one of their faces. So it's possible, but not in this proximity. So in other words, the film camera is in a position that no theater audience conceivably can be. And yet this is arguably one of the most critical moments in the production itself. And in fact, this and the film translation leads us to the final moment of the show, which is that Eliza, after having acknowledged and seen Hamilton, breaks away from him, turns back to the audience, comes to the, the very foot of the stage, looks up, at the full audience and has what is now referred to as Eliza's gasp. And this, this is a moment in the show, in the live show that happens very, very quickly at the end of two and a half hours and did not generate significant commentary until the filmed version uh, was circulated. And then we see Eliza come out of this moment, again, a series of moments in close up from a position that again, no human being in the theater audience can see. And all of a sudden there became a, a huge discourse around what is the meaning? Like, what is she looking at? What is she gasping at? What does it capture? Right. And that this, in fact, and I'll, I'll get to this a little bit more in a moment, triggered a whole subsequent set of conversations and analyses um, and discussions and participation in the production from the perspective of audiences and critics about what this final meaning meant for them, what it meant for the actor, and what it meant for the character. And so this, of course, then leads us to this question of, of, of what about the audience and, and the community and the flow of energy required by, by physical presence back and forth between audiences and performers that Fischer Lichte and many others have cited as the essence, even the ontology of, of, of theater. And what we can see, or what I would suggest, is that that too has been translated into another language, that of social media. 
Historically, theater defined by its shared space and time was seen as having these essential uh, conditions, uh, referring to theater as the hypermedium. Heel Kattenbelt, for example, described a stage of intermediality that was capable of holding all the other arts without fundamentally altering them. But unlike film and television, he argued, theater also takes its place in the absolute presence of here and now. The performer and spectator are physically present in the same time and same space. They are there for each other. Of course, Kattenbelt's essay that contained this appeared in 2006, the same year that Facebook first became available to the wider public and forever changing our notions of both media and friends. But even prior to, to that, in 2003, Diana Taylor had already begun questioning the meaning of performance presence in the context of the digital. In reflecting on the virtual, for example, she writes that the repertoire requires presence. People participate in the production and reproduction of knowledge by being there, being part of the transmission. But she acknowledged that the digital might, this was a big uh, might for her in 2003, might extend beyond physical or what she called body-to-body -body transmission. The ontological liveness of theater has been vigorously debated prior to the pandemic. As many have observed over the past 20 or 30 years, the widespread circulation of performances online and the emergence of social media have often upended what it means to be there or indeed anywhere. Now in the age of ubiquitous smartphones and social media, it is possible to be virtually everywhere. And in case we're thinking that this is frivolous, for those of you who have been following along with the Pegasus spyware issue, know now that in fact, the fact that you can be virtually everywhere also means that you are virtually exposed, particularly to, to state and, and, and other actors, and that this can have direct political, social, but also bodily consequences. No longer limited to the exclusive interactions of the Broadway theater, Hamilton's audience is actively engaged with its creators via collaboratively um, annotated lyrics on Genius.com. This is an ongoing social media platform where people can comment on lyrics on various kinds of music. And you'll see here that the Hamilton albums have 64.7 million views. The engaging antics of the original cast when they were still performing in New York designated with the hashtag uh, ham for ham brought interactive parodies and moments of the show outside the physical theater to anyone who assembled on the street outside the Rogers Theater um, and was part of the ham for ham lottery in which people could apply for a small set of reserved inexpensive tickets um, to an otherwise sold out or inaccessible show. Miranda, pictured here, among others, often responded directly to audiences. So, for example, this is a screen capture from a, a YouTube video that was recorded on July 28th, 2015, which happened to be the 40 or 50 year anniversary of the opening night of A Chorus Line. And so Miranda took questions from the audience, but he would only respond by singing lyrics from the musical A Chorus Line. In the wake of Hamilton's release on Disney+, Plus, downloads of the Disney Plus mobile app increased 72% between July 3rd and July 6th, 2020. When the show was released, it released on July 7th, over 80% of Disney's current subscribers watched the show and millions of posts immediately circulated online. We might debate, and I'm certainly willing to do so today and as other times, the value or the meaning of this, of this engagement. But based on sheer numbers alone, we cannot dismiss that the audience's engagement with the show and its performers neither begins with opening night 
nor in many instances ends with the closing of live performance venues and being um, and being there. And further, that being there may include not only physical presence, but also multiple forms of digital engagement across platforms. The opportunities for live theater to reach mass global audiences before, during, and after the run of a show will not diminish as the pandemic fades. The infrastructure has been built and is expanding, and there is clearly money to be made. We will continue to see live performance translated to other media. Some of it will be better than others, but we should not dismiss the form itself. This is digital theater and it can be done very, very well. I should also note it can be done very, very badly. Of course, this is only one type of digital theater. The opportunities are even more pronounced in the work of digital theater creators making work explicitly for online audiences. One of my favorite companies of the past year has been Fake Friends, a small company of playwrights, directors, actors, performers, and dramaturgs working primarily in digital theater. In the fall of 2020, they created the show Circle Jerk, and this is a clip from it. Created in and for the non-space of the internet, the show satirized the phenomena of white gay men like Milo Yiannopoulos and Peter Thiel in right-wing movements perpetuated on social media platforms. The play was explicit in its politics as well as in its theatrical origins. The opening sequence introduced a troll, a sort of metaphor of the online troll and a physical embodiment of a troll shown here played by Patrick Foley, who opened with a kind of sonnet spoken in, in rhymed couplets. Circle Jerk was live streamed from a small performance space in Brooklyn outfitted explicitly for that purpose. Produced by the playwright Jeremy O'Harris, who also promoted the show on Twitter, it was performed by a small cast of three with two male leads playing several roles each. Drawing on both comedia and social media tropes, all three performers ran from scene to scene, camera to camera, while live audiences peered in through our screens. Although one could of course record and rewatch the show, the show was streamed in real time and performed live for each of its productions with a robust and simultaneous presence engaged in real time chat via Twitter. For me, this paratheatrical activity was where in some ways the real theater took place. An online community as an audience that chatted, repeated lines, registered emotions, picked favorites and virtually laughed and cheered throughout the show. There were brief comments from the casting crew to the Twitter commentary throughout Circle Jerk, and their next two shows built even more vibrantly on this early experiment. Their next project, Ratatouille, the TikTok musical, for example, called upon TikTok's many musical theater fans who collaboratively contributed to creating a musical online version of the Disney film about a rat who fantasizes about becoming a chef. With a script created by fake friends Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley, the first crowdsourced TikTok musical came together in just a few months, obtaining broadcast rights from Disney for two performances in early 2021. Broadway and Hollywood stars, including Titus Burgess and the cast of the musical The Six, who were unable to work in stage plays at the time, performed for what was ultimately over 2 million viewers worldwide for the two performances. And with tickets going for only $5 each, the show raised more than a million dollars for the Actors Fund charity. Incredibly, the show received a review from the New York Times theater critic, Jesse Green, who offered mixed praise for the production. And this is a quote from Green's New York Times review of January 3rd, 2021. I, I won't read all of it, but simply draw attention to a couple of pieces. One is only slivers of the TikTok material made it into the hour-long piece. I mean, there were probably over a thousand hours of material that had been generated for this, um, and even less of the movie's richer actions. 
And then he sort of ends with this backhanded compliment to Titus Burgess, who finds the right throwaway tone for the throwaway material. Green's critique again points to the reception of digital theater as flawed translation. That is compared with the originals, here the movie's richer action, Ratatouille's translation seems destined to fail. However, more importantly, the amazing production demonstrated not only the potential for social media and crowdsourcing to shape theatrical reception, but also and simultaneously its production. Perhaps the best example is their most recent production, This American Wife, a self-proclaimed live-streamed multi-camera internet play that broadcast May 20 through 29 in 2021. The title of the show is a pun on the popular radio drama, This American Life, which airs on national public radio and tells unusual but compelling true stories of everyday Americans. Hosted by Ira Glass, the radio show is a kind of middle-brow version of America's obsession with reality television, found on nearly every broadcast network now, uh, with entire channels dedicated exclusively to the genre. The focus of This American Wife is the Real Housewives television franchise, a series based in various cities, including the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, the Real Housewives of New York, and the Real Housewives of Atlanta. The series began in 2006 on the cable channel Bravo, a channel that uh, I'm not sure how aware this is internationally, but in the U.S., for example, in the 1980s, Bravo was known for producing experimental contemporary performance. For example, um, Pina Bausch had a, had a whole special devoted to her and her work on Bravo in, in 1983, I believe. The Real Housewives of Orange County was the first in a series that was described as, quote, a riveting series exploring the complicated daily lives of five privileged women and their families. From Peyton Place to Desperate Housewives, viewers have been riveted by the fictionalized versions of such lifestyles on television. Now here is a series that depicts real-life Desperate Housewives with an authentic look at their compelling day-to-day -day drama. Like all great satires, This American Wife is fundamentally an homage from devoted fans of the show. The performance follows roughly a three-act structure with interstitial dramaturgical elements that anchor viewers who may be unfamiliar with the original series in the theatricality of reality television and The Real Housewives in particular. The introduction to the performance, This American Wife that is, is carefully couched in theatrical references to Brecht among others, as the cast drives up to a large suburban mansion on Long Island. The first act of the play introduces the three main cast members, all men, each of whom metonymically stand in for one of the wives of the three series locations, Beverly Hills, New York, and Atlanta. As they and camera operators skillfully navigate the mansion's gaudy interiors, they recite verbatim lines from their respective housewives shows. Um, and these are actually quite ingeniously put in dialogue with one another, speaking both to the kind of you know, clever dramaturgy of the piece, but also to the ways in which reality television, even in, in very different locations, follows the same kinds of tropes and structures and such that it can be stitched together in really compelling and, and interesting ways. The second act features the core cast in intimate close-ups with other cast members holding the cameras and asking personal questions. Again, raising issues of veracity and truth in these interpersonal narratives. 
even for those who are intimately familiar with the original show, there's too much nuance and detail historically, dramaturgically, sociologically for me to effectively detail here. So I'm going to focus only on act three, which breaks literally out of the house frame and presents a real-time live interaction among the cast, one of whom adamantly identifies as an actor, another who refuses to be called an actor and insists that he is a performer, and the online Twitter audience watching the show. Physically situated in a garage transformed into a green studio, Patrick Foley um, and Jaquim Dante Powell play themselves against a background digital superimposed behind them like Zoom or Teams virtual backgrounds that we have all come to know and love. Breslin uh, conducts a real-time, perhaps improvised, perhaps scripted, very unclear, interview with the other two and operates a camera that shifts perspective between the two while there are fixed cameras on both of them. In addition, there's a small GoPro camera fixed above the garage space that can sort of show an image down. In the event that there were technical difficulties, which again, may be scripted, may be improvised, we can move from one of the cameras into the GoPro. Breslin not only interviews and appears to work one of the cameras, he also engages with the show's real-time Twitter feed. And you can see this actually in his left hand there, responding in real-time to audience questions in tweets, suggestions, and retweeting hashtags. He also brings questions that are raised on Twitter into and uses those as the, the foundational text for the interview with the other two. Again, unclear how much is improvised until you start hearing your you know, recently formulated question on Twitter posed out loud in the context of the show. Here are the tropes of reality TV confessionals, direct address to the camera as virtual audience with off-screen social media following are translated into the theater space. The audience is engaged in a robust back and forth flow with the actors and performers who respond to the spectators even as they translate the housewives and themselves into the mediated performance space that is simultaneously part house, part theater, part television, and all digital. It is, I would submit, the quintessence of Benjamin's translation as perpetual imminence, simultaneously translating the original text of the housewives series perpetuating the original performances and destroying them all simultaneously. It is neither fully adaption nor exclusively parody, neither film nor television, but also not the theater of bodily co-presence. Instead, it is a uniquely digital theater, a distinct entity that translates these texts and affect um, into new media to reach radically expanded audiences. Digital theater as translation then is for me an essential part of theater's future post-pandemic. This is not to say that digital theater will replace or negate other historical forms of drama any more than film, television, video games, and other media have eliminated theater in the live arts. These and other forms will continue to circulate as related phenomena on a spectrum of media, adapting to new platforms and genres and remediating pre-existing forms. Unlike remediation, however, which aims at a transparent, immersive, and frictionless media experience, the translation of digital theater retains and foregrounds its problems, gaps, and failures. It is a performance genre perpetually and inevitably marked by monstrous loss. To return to Mazzacci's question then, it is quite possible and even probable that the theatrical digital performance experiments of the pandemic will require new terminology and new languages if only to stake out distinct economic opportunities among competing media and related labor laws and contracts. Certainly one of the great challenges in the US and Canada over the past two years 
has been the inconsistency and the inconsistent treatment among forms. In Toronto, for example, film shoots and studios have been open for over a year with revised and mandated COVID protocols, while theater venues remained closed, even for live streaming. Theaters worked around these guidelines at times by partnering, ironically, with media production companies who could film from the inside of theaters, sometimes the very same theater buildings that were closed. In a strange bit of irony, a theater could not live stream a theatrical performance from within its space, but it could rent its space as a location shoot to a film or media company that wanted to broadcast or to film within it. These material considerations and their impact on public cultural policy are incredibly important. However, as a theater critic, historian, and teacher, I am also deeply interested in observing how the translations of theater can reach new and increasingly diverse media audiences. Because of course, unlike remediation or adaptation, translations always require particular receptive audiences. An English translation directs itself to English readers. Similarly, This American Wife translates theater performance for reality television audiences, translates reality television for social media audiences, and translates social media back to theater audiences. It addresses the multiple literacies of varied folks across geographic and cultural boundaries. And it is telling that their first pandemic era show was titled Circle Jerk, a vulgar reference to communal stimulation and experience that captures the way in which new forms and audiences can be caught in ongoing affective loops. And again, I think there's a broader conversation here around an investigation into the framing of queer in these contexts as well as a resistance to their commodification and recirculation as commodities, which again, we can talk about uh, in, in lots of different ways. Certainly, the company's name of fake friends is a further comment on the tenuousness of contemporary social relationships created and conducted overwhelmingly through social media and often against the lens of reality TV expectations. And I'm thinking again, I'm going back to Amy's comments about young people in mental health and what the pandemic has done in terms of altering those social dynamics and also redirecting them to overwhelmingly and sometimes even exclusively online frameworks. Of course, each translation or transfer um, is for some a degradation, like the eroding quality of a videotape rewound and replayed too many times. But this again is what makes translation as a concept so appealing as the synchronon of digital theater and our post-pandemic world. In its failure, theater may yet find its most enduring post-pandemic success. More broadly, as we recognize the many diverse and divergent audiences, as well as the convergence among all of the topics of this particular conference, we can further recognize that we need new ways to talk to one another, recognizing that our discourses, theatrical, political, medical, are ongoing and always fraught with misunderstandings. Digital theater can both highlight these diversities and simultaneously help us to bridge them. As it has been remarked many times before, the theater may be dead, the digital theater may not exist, and at the same time, long live digital theater. Thanks so much for your time and attention. I look forward to the conversation.